We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. It does feel good to have Bob Leader be our official intro music. That was wonderful. And, in fact, we'll have more from Bob a little bit later on. Um, welcome back to Joe's Patio. Joe, uh, good to be with you once again. How are you doing? Doing well, as well as can be expected. At least we're outside. It's beautiful here. We can bike and walk and even swim. And uh, we certainly uh, are thinking and praying for everybody involved. And let's hope that uh, we have baseball sooner than later, although certainly no way to set a target date. No, I think the, the goalposts keep moving on us. Uh, we're going to chat about some of the, the ideas and speculation that have come out of baseball. Um, we understand it's 46 and rainy in Boston today. We would have been at Fenway Park for the home opener. Th- that makes today another one in a, what is a, a, an increasingly long line, Joe, of difficult days. I mean, there's nothing quite like the home opener uh, and a, a chance, I think, for the, the fans of the Red Sox to wash away what has been somewhat of a forgettable offseason. We sure are uh, a little bit uh, wistful that we're not at Fenway today. No question about it. Uh, opening day is always a rebirth. It's a renaissance. And uh, to not be there today really uh, makes it hit home, I think, uh, even more than the opener last week, which would have been in Toronto on the road. Don't you think, Joe, that... One of the things that makes baseball the great game it is and and broadcasting baseball the great job that it is, all the people you come in contact with and cross paths with through the years. And we see a lot of the writers down here in Florida at spring training, but I feel like the home opener back at your ballpark where you have spent so many years, you see the same folks in the press room, in the dining room, up and down the elevators the security guards down on the field at Fenway Park, the clubhouse attendants, there is a, a real family return to the home opener. Yeah, no question about it. People you haven't seen since the end of the previous season who work at the ballpark, the game day workers. Of course, we do see uh, the front office people, the players, and uh, the staff in spring training. But uh, it really is special to come back to the ballpark and uh, see all those familiar faces and, of course, uh, the bunning out around uh, the barriers, around the fences, and uh, to be on the field for the pregame ceremonies, which I've had the pleasure of doing for many, many years, uh, some so memorable. I'll never forget 05. Uh, one of my highlights uh, was Don Orsillo got to introduce the world champion Red Sox, and I introduced the visiting New York Yankees. <laughs> and when I... Introduce Mariano Rivera, I could hear the crescendo building. So I said, let's pause. And the the hand for Mario for Mariano Rivera was just incredible because, of course, he had given up uh, the Dave Roberts steal and the hit by 
Bill Miller that tied the game in game four. We all know what happened after that. But Rivera handled with such class and dignity and with such a smile. And that was, to me, is one of the most memorable uh, opening day ceremonies we've ever had. That in 2008 when Bill Buckner came out of the left field wall. And uh, you could see him wiping away the tears in the photos from that day. Not that he had to be forgiven uh, because we want to go back to 86. The game was tied. They'd already blown the lead. I don't know why people lose sight of that fact, but that's a story for another podcast. Most people think that that game, Joe, was lost on the, whether it's a wild pitch, pass ball, whatever you want to call it, that that play changed the whole game. I think it did, without a doubt. And it also was lost when Dave Stabler wasn't put out at first base for nearly Bill Buckner in the bottom of that 10th inning. And, uh, Oh, that's uh, another can of worms. No question about that. We're going to keep keep going on on a little bit of 04, and then we'll get into the 2018 Divisional Series, which will air on WEEI tonight. We're excited to to carry that entire World Series run. We're going to do that on our air for the next several weeks, and that should be a lot of fun to relive good memories. You know, if there's an upside to, to not having real games, Joe, it's that I'm now transfixed on the MLB network for all the great games that they have been airing. And... Uh, you know, they go through the top 20 games of all time, and they just played game four of the 2004 American League Championship Series. They've got Kevin Millar on with Bob Costas and Tom Verducci talking about all the emotion of that night. You know, it's crazy. People do think about the steal because it's the most famous play in the last 30 years in Red Sox history. What David Ortiz did in the 12th inning, I mean, none of it matters were it not for what Ortiz does after they escape the major jam in the 11th inning. And, Joe, you can speak to this better than anybody. Before that night, David Ortiz was not the clutch hero that he would become for the remainder of his career. He wasn't in 2003 either until he tied the game when the Red Sox on the verge of elimination against Oakland in the division series, and then uh, he had the slow start as the entire team did. I mean, they're down three games to none. But he hit that walk-off off one of my favorite players, pitchers Paul Quantrill, whose son is a top pitcher now for San Diego, hit it into the bullpen, and uh, we all know what happened the next night with the almost six-hour marathon and his walk-off hit there. But uh, that was the uh, the real start. I mean, he had some big hits during the regular season, but that was the real start of the legend of Big Poppy. I know that people throughout New England think they know you, Joe, like you're a member of their family because they've had you on in the background of so many family events and meals and, you know, cocktail parties and Labor Day picnics. I think they would be interested to know, Joe, let's take today, the home opener at Fenway Park, a di- you know, a late afternoon start. What's your routine like on a day like today? What would you have done today had you left your house and driven to the ballpark for the home opener? Well, never knowing about the Southeast Distress Way, I would have left very early. <laughs> uh, probably with uh, family. My son, Tom, was scheduled himself off that day from his medical practice, Uh Depends when Jan got back from spring training, whether she uh, would have gone or not. But uh, get to the ballpark early, go to the booth, and uh, make sure everything works and set up. And then uh, go down to the manager's office to tape the manager's show and try to be on the field uh, to greet people in batting practice. Uh, not so much the players you've seen all spring training, but a lot of the people, as you mentioned before, we hadn't seen since last season. 
Do you think there is any silver lining for Ron Renicky in that, you know, it was so late in the game when he got named the interim manager. Do, does he get a chance? He's managed before. He's had success as a big league manager. But do you think that there's a sliver of upside in this for him in that he can maybe take a little extra time to get himself in order for the season to come? Well, I think that's part of it also. Uh, the fans will be so happy just to have baseball back and to have life back again that uh, wins and losses might not be as critical when this thing gets started. So Scott Boris was vocal about this, and I think uh, more and more you're seeing stories about that in the discussions between baseball and the players' union, it is, if not inevitable, increasingly, exceedingly likely that when we start the season, if we do, there will not be fans in the ballpark. I, I'm totally with that, Joe. Don't you think that makes the most sense? I think it does, especially I saw a stat that only about 30% of baseball revenue comes from gate, from attendance. I mean, TV pays the freight, so does radio. Certainly, we know that at Intercom with a rights fee that's paid. And social media, of course, has been a tremendous boon for baseball, one of Bud Sealing's legacies, really one of his great ideas. So I think that's a very feasible. You could start earlier that way, and it makes a lot of sense. Give the fans some programming. They'll have baseball back. We are here in Florida, and it was just yesterday that um, you know the stay-at-home order went in place. We know that people in New England have, have been putting up with that for a little bit longer, and in California and New York and some of these other states, it's been uh, in place a lot longer. But I, I do think that around here, Joe, um, it has started, I think, you, I, I've seen in grocery stores and out on the roads, more people are wearing masks. I think for the first time, it is amazing, even though we've known what is happening, that the power that these elected officials have, it, they say one thing, and all of a sudden there's this black and white dramatic change in behavior. Yeah, we've seen it. Though. I mean, we were at the beach uh, two and a half weeks ago and saw the spring breakers mm -hmm. in action and not uh, observing the physical distancing, and uh, the same goes for senior citizens that we've seen uh, here in the complex in which we live. But I think right now uh, I was out today uh, to a store and saw all the masks and the gloves and wiping down the shopping carts. It has hit home, and let's hope it can at least uh, have uh, – a cautionary effect and slow this thing down. The one nice thing is people are out and about riding bikes, walking, you know, holding hands with their spouse. It's been, uh, there is some bright side to this, and we hope that maybe that can carry over. Tonight on WEEI, we air game one of the 2018 Divisional Series. Before we get into some of the specifics of that game, Joe, that year, pure magic. Really, from the outset, once you get over the major speed bump of the first game of the season – a historic first month of the season. They just went on an unbelievable run. Going into the playoffs, you had to feel like, Joe, in all your years, that this team had as good a chance. And really, didn't you think they should win the world championship? I did, yeah, without a doubt. I thought they should have won it in 07, and they should have won it in 18. 04 was a great surprise, the greatest comeback ever. And 13 was just the bonus because of what happened with the Boston Marathon bombing and the way that team took off. But 2018, the heartbreak bullpen implosion in game one and then winning 17 of the first 19 and wire to wire uh, 
after that first day. 108 regular season wins. Anything but a world championship would have been a big disappointment. And it started out so well in game one with J.D. Martinez hitting a three-run homer in the very first inning. And the Red Sox building a 5 nothing lead. But I did not have a great feeling when that game ended because it almost got away. It was a one-run victory, and the Red Sox just did hang on. Indeed it did. It seems like there was a carryover for the regular season. So as Joe mentioned, in the bottom of the first inning, two men are on, and J.D. Martinez comes up, and here's what that sounded like. The pitch. Swing. There's a drive to left field. Back by the wall. Is it high enough? Yes! Three-run homer into the first row of the monster seats. Three-nothing Red Sox. A three-run homer by J.D. Martinez. Three-nothing Red Sox. J.D. had eight three-run homers in the regular season, and he hit a bullet. So, Joe, Fenway's rocking. Everybody's feeling good. Uh, you know, the, the Red Sox closed the regular season with the New York Yankees. That They, they were not... They were setting up their pitching. They they won the the uh, division, don't you think, that night in August when they swept the Yankees late on a Sunday night when Tony Renda pinch runs and scores on a Benintendi hit. Uh, putting himself in the record books as one of the few guys who has more World Series rings than at-bats in a World <laughs> Series season. But the Red Sox, the point is, for two months, they'd known they were going to be in the position they were in. But uh, there was some carryover, didn't you feel like, from the regular season into that very first inning? Oh, I did, yes. It seemed to fit the script perfectly of the way that uh, the regular season had gone. And uh, after it almost got away, you started to feel uneasy because it should have been an easy victory, and it was anything but that. And, of course, then Game 2 came along, the Yankees win. And thankfully, Aaron Judge had that boom box. <laughs> no kidding. Playing Sweet Caroline going by the Red Sox clubhouse on his way to the bus. That was not well received. <laughs> you know... The, the Red Sox, they, they have a new manager in Alex Cora who in this game won and then throughout the entire playoffs just has this incredible run, this magic touch. Uh, but J.D. Martinez, we, we didn't know it when game one was played. Mookie Betts was the MVP of the American League, but J.D. Martinez was just a spectacular force, the, really the heart of the lineup that they did not have the year prior. Looking back on that year, Joe, what was it like watching J.D. and the, the impact he had on that offense? Well, he had the tremendous impact uh, in terms of his production. He also had a great impact in the batting cages and uh, off the field, constantly talking hitting with Mookie and Jackie, Xander. Uh, he had a great influence, uh, I think, because... This club was so focused on what they were doing on the field. They talked baseball constantly, and J.D. was a very big reason for that. So he had impact in all areas, and he gave the Red Sox the big booming bat that they hadn't had in 16 and 17 when they made postseason and didn't last long. I think a lot of people felt angst when the Yankees signed Garrett Cole in this offseason. And, and yet, Joe, I'm sort of astonished by the fact, not only have the Red Sox won four in the last 15 years, people seem to forget that all these moves that look great on paper the last decade plus have just backfired in spectacular fashion in the playoffs. And in game one of this divisional series, Jay Happ is on the mound. He gives up the home run to JD. And then in the third inning, both Steve Pierce and Xander Bogarts deliver. It's five, nothing Red Sox after three innings. Yeah. And guys, it would, of course, uh, Rear their heads later with Steve Pierce going on to win the World Series MVP. 
So it was representative of the way that team uh, put it all together with so many different people contributing. It's sort of the, the beginning of realizing how Alex Cora is going to manage the bullpen and the whole pitching staff. It really kind of came immediately in the playoffs. You got your ace, the big horse, Chris Sale, on the mound. Uh, but they are really tight with him, and they take him out in the sixth inning. And, Joe, that's when things start to get hairy. When in the playoff run did you did you have a sense from talking to Alex Cora going into that series at all that they were going to manage it so differently? To use the starters out of the bullpen, uh, not really. I mean, Alex didn't tip his hand about that. But you saw it right away in game one with Rick Porcello coming out of the pen to get a couple of critical outs. And, of course, we saw that theme played over and over, and it wound up with Chris Sale pitching the final inning of the clincher against the Dodgers. So, And, of course, Evaldi with the great bullpen performances. So uh, it was a tip-off of the way he was going to manage. Uh, totally different than the regular season. You do that in the regular season, you burn out your staff. It has changed so dramatically, Joe, the way that managers use starting pitching. In the playoffs, and I think in particular in the World Series, I mean, your good friend Rich Hill has been on the, the downside of, I think, probably too short of a hook. The, the Dodgers may well have a World Series ring had they not taken Rich out of some of those games. But in the top of the sixth inning of this game one in 2018, Alex Cora has sort of seen enough when Sale gives up hits to Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, and he takes him out. He brings in Ryan Brazier. Now, Brazier would go on to be one of the real heroes in the bullpen for the Red Sox all the way into the World Series. But that night at Fenway Park, his first real taste of the cauldron of postseason action, uh, both Voight and Didi Gregorius get him. And so it's a tumultuous start to Brazier and his run in the 18 playoffs. But then, of course, he came back and got Gary Sanchez in a key spot after uh, admonishing him to get back in the batter's box with a few extra. <laughs> in as many words. <laughs> Wasn't that the, the remarkable part about that year, Joe, is you got the superstars like Mookie and J.D. and the ace and Chris Sale, but uh, it's people like Ryan Brazier, of all people, off the scra- literally off the scrap heap, who's called to a tryout from a bachelor party in Las Vegas. One team calls him back after several watch and pitch. I mean, Ryan Brazier was an unbelievable part of that narrative. Yeah, and they saw him pitch in a try camp in January. He didn't sign him for almost two months, and he comes to spring training. And we saw him. Who's this guy? Where he uh, was at number twenty, number forty-eight. Who is this guy? And. We had to run him down, but he pitched so well. It was a big part of that season. But to win a world championship, you have to have contributions from so many people that you don't expect to perform like that. Such a neat story how Alex Cora would have to tell the regular players because in spring training, you saw Ryan Brazier pitch. A lot of the regular guys did not because they had left the ballpark. He came in in the seventh, eighth innings, and those guys are not around. And Alex said, guys, you, you will not believe the stuff that this guy has. And certainly he was proven right. So yeah. it's 5-2 going into the seventh inning. And then Brandon Workman, Luke Voigt. I mean, Luke Voigt, of all people, has a big game one in the division series. He, he grounds out to score Andrew McCutcheon. Uh, and so it's a 5-3 game. And here is where things get really interesting, Joe, what you were talking about and where Alex Cora really shows Red Sox fans how he's going to handle this thing. In the eighth inning, Rick Porcello comes on to face – uh, a lot of the, the Yankees' big hitters. He's got Andujar, Sanchez, and Glaber Torres, and uh, he sees three of them. He gives up a hit to Torres, and immediately Alex Cora goes to the mound and brings on K- Craig Kimbrell. Well, you recall was not a big fan of four-out saves. He liked to pitch his one inning, but he did get out of that jam, and, of course, the ninth inning got a little hairy. Isn't that crazy, Joe? I mean, it, 
for whatever reason, Kimbrell, with a big lead in a non-save situation or for more than three outs, just can you ever can you remember a guy in your career who was you know like that in that when you just have to get the three outs, he lights out automatic, but any other situation, he sometimes struggled. Well, we've seen a lot of closers struggle when there's no safe situation in line. Uh, they like those numbers. That's part of it, but a lot of it is they don't have that same adrenaline flow, that same concentration, perhaps. But that was unusual, and uh, this time the Red Sox did more or less escape with a four-out save. So Andrew McCutcheon is the hitter, and Craig Kimball comes on, and he gets him to fly out to right. And the, the Red Sox go to the bottom of the eighth, leading by two. The And the fans at Fenway are feeling pretty good now, Joe. Three outs away from a win in game one. And we are going to replicate exactly what they heard. Bob Leader is here to, to lead us in the Fort Myers version of Sweet Caroline. The leader of the band from Livonia, New York. Before a great Lanai audience in Southwest Florida, they, they Bob feel... Leader, former band director at Livonia High School outside of Rochester, New York, and that, still that sounds so good. So a great good, jazz musician, it? so Man, good. Alive. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. All right. So David Robertson gets the Red Sox in the bottom of the eighth, and then Kimbrell, to your point, Joe, top of the ninth, here comes Aaron Judge. Hits the solo home run, 5-4. What's the feeling like in Fenway Park at that moment? That this one slips sliding away. It's exactly how I felt at that moment. And it was not the very comfortable feeling. Why This team had, had sort of obvious glaring bullpen needs. Is that what was contributing to that, where you just said, you know, with this unbelievable historic run, is this going to be the Achilles heel that haunts this team and prevents them from winning? Well, it was certainly in 2003. <laughs> And you had that feeling it could uh, be the case again. And Kimbrell had been shaky. I mean, let's face it, throughout the entire postseason, he wasn't uh, the dominant pitcher he had been earlier, whether that was command issues with his breaking ball or people were not swinging at it uh, and sitting on his fastball. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, you know, in the long run, he did escape. He did indeed. In fact, he strikes out the side in that ninth inning and the Red Sox get out of town in game one with a narrow win. We'll talk about game two and three the next time we, we convene for one of these podcasts. But uh, it's interesting. I, I, I'm sort of surprised, Joe, that you felt like even though 
they won that game one, you left the ballpark with somewhat of an ominous feeling. Yes, because they had a 5 nothing lead. It looked like it'd be a laugher, and it nearly got away. And, of course, part of it is the club they were playing. I mean, you always have those feelings about the Yankees. <laughs> and how are they going to uh, spoil the party? Unfortunately, this time, they didn't. They only won the one game. I find that it, it makes it much sweeter when the Yankees are part of a, a postseason run for the Red Sox. It, it, I mean, yes, is it nice if you have to play the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cleveland Indians and maybe those are down years for them? I guess so. But something – I mean, we both know, Joe, that the lore of 2004 is not remotely the same if it's not the Yankees on the other side. And in some ways, on the on the first round of the, what is, I think most people agree, the greatest – season start to all the way finish at the end of the world series it's i think it's historically important that you get past the new york yankees and to win a yankee stadium for the second time as they did in 2004 to walk off the field on the yankees home turf and celebrate uh, i think did make it extra special and there is something better about beating the yankees than beating another club you watched with your own eyes and talked over so many of those moments of heartbreak for the Red Sox and for their fans, especially in the old stadium. I know it's a little different in the new ballpark. Did you ever feel like there were ghosts in that old new Yankee stadium? Oh, yeah, many times. I'll never forget, I think it was Greg Harris pitching, and Mike Stanley was batting for the Yankees. This was a game in 93 where both clubs are going nowhere. And Stanley's the fly ball caught. Ball game over. Oh, no, it's not. A fan had run on the field. The umpire called time. <laughs> right. And Stanley got a hit. The Yankees went on to win the game. And you had a feeling this could only happen at the old Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and it was an intimidating place because of the overhang and the outfield. The fans are right on top of you. The newer Yankee Stadium doesn't have that same aura. You got the moat there with super high price seats behind home plate, many of which are unoccupied. And it it's more corporate. It's almost like a digital replica of the old ballpark. It just doesn't have that same uh, aura about it. So, But there certainly were some ghosts there, I think. We've talked a lot about some of the unintended consequences of no games for now and how that might look for contracts. It occurred to me yesterday, Joe, that the currency of the realm right now in baseball is young, controllable players. And while the Orioles, who we talked about last week, might benefit from not paying Chris or not having Chris Davis play games, the Red Sox would get almost immeasurably harmed if they don't get a year of Rafael Devers at whatever it is, $680,000. I mean, he is one of the, if not the number one bargain for production yeah. <laughs> in the entire sport. They want. Devers at this cost for 2020. He's controllable. It is for a couple of years. And, I mean, his his talent is limitless. To that point, the commissioner announced that no matter what, if there are not games, that the Astros' bans will, will be in place no matter what. That even if there's not a season, all of the penalties are going to uh, carry on, which means for A.J. Hinch that if there's no season, that you know if another team wanted to hire him, uh, for 2021, they could do that. Don't you think that A.J. Hinch will get another managerial job? He won. I, so that's usually all it takes. Alex I think Cora he will. Too, right? Yes, I think so. Uh, Alex might perhaps do a year of TV or something before that, but uh, 
he'll be in demand. There's no question about it. But when you win, that's the case. You know, we're going to try as best we can to to talk to people and get as much inside info as we can about when this thing may start. But really, Joe, there's just no way to do it. And I think at the moment, you know, the fact that some states, baseball has said they're not going to play games if there are any state regulations that prevent public gatherings. And yesterday, Virginia and D.C. and Maryland have said we can't have gatherings of any size, and we're going to practice stay-at-home social distancing till the third week of June. So to me, it means June is less and less likely every day that passes. It's so hard to speculate now. This hasn't crested yet, so. Well, we're just going to wait and see. Ed Farmer, a member of your fraternity, Joe, a longtime radio voice of the the Chicago White Sox, a a big league pitcher in his own right, and a, a guy who had a good career and a great career in the booth. What are your memories of Ed? And I know uh, it was hard to wake up and, and read that news. Yeah, it would have been at Fenway Park today in the next uh, booth to us doing play-by-play of the season opener for the Red Sox at home and the White Sox uh, visiting along with his partner, Darren Jackson. I used to love to listen to those guys on the way home from Fenway every night, uh, even though the White Sox were going nowhere because they talk baseball, were so entertaining and so informative. Wonderful guys. Uh, Ed was a real character, a wonderful guy, and he had so many different interests. He pitched in the big leagues at the age of 17, broke in with the Cleveland Indians in 1971. And he was very proud and loved to tell me about a letter he got when he was 11 years old from Neil Mahoney, the Red Sox scouting director, a letter talking about his talent as an 11-year-old and how the Red Sox would keep an eye on him really? until he got of age to sign. And then he signs at uh, 17 with uh, the Indians, got to the big leagues, pitched for several clubs, had a period uh, in his late 20s where he was hurt and didn't pitch for the big leagues in a couple of years, came back and had a really a second career, made the all-star team with his White Sox in uh, 1980 and finished up in 83. Um, he was a South Sider, went to St. Rita's High School on the south side of Chicago. So he was a hometown uh, hero there and uh, went to the booth after his playing days where uh, he and Darren Jackson formed a, a wonderful team. But uh, what I loved about Ed was his passion for the game and also his knowledge. Ed had politics the kidneys which uh, are usually fatal. Sometimes his mother passed away at the age of 38. It's inherited. And he became one of the very first patients to get a kidney transplant in Boston at Beth Israel Hospital in the early 90s. He was scouting for the Orioles when he got sick, and Larry Lucchino got him into the hospital. Larry's running the Orioles at the time, had the surgery, uh, got a kidney from his brother. And he was very, very grateful for that. And every time... The White Sox came to Fenway. He would have all of his doctors from Beth Israel and from Harvard Medical School in his booth. Hmm. And there would be a big get-together of medical people. And Ed would go to Harvard, and he'd study medical research. And he could really uh, just blow you away with his knowledge of research into uh, cancer and uh, all kinds of other maladies, including, of course, the kidney disease. So he was so much so much fun to be around. And uh, 
I just texted his partner, Darren Jackson, who, of course, is uh, so upset by this. Uh, they were very close. Uh, DJ's a great guy, too. He went to spring training with the Red Sox in the mid-'90s. I think it was the strike year, 95. Didn't make the ball club. He had an invitation, and when they didn't sign him, he had an opt-out. And he signed with the Minnesota Twins, and about two weeks into the regular season, we're at the Metrodome, and Darren Jackson hit a grand slam <laughs> to beat the Red Sox. Hit it off Toby Borland, the sidewinder. I saw where Darren <laughs> posted on uh, social media. He has had a front-row seat for what has been going on with Ed for a lot of years. And those of us around the game have seen that Ed has taken fewer and fewer road trips. And he's really in the last year or two had to really hunker down and, and fight this thing. And so Darren said that while I really miss my friend and I will forever, you know, long for the days we had in the booth, he has ended his suffering. And so if there's any upside in that, yes, uh, there is that. And, and in a way that it's just one of those crazy things where, he, he would have been at Fenway Park today, you know, celebrating with his doctors and all those who helped him. Uh, you know, we talked about the Labor Day picnics and all the community that baseball has with its fans. There are not many people walking on the face of the earth, Joe, but you're one of them who can talk about what it feels like to have that relationship with that many people. And there are people throughout Chicago and throughout the Midwest who have listened to Ed do thousands of games. What does it mean to you? And what must it have meant to Ed to have that relationship with so many people? Well, it's something that you can't bottle. It's uh, a real privilege uh, to be in people's homes and cars or in their headsets and uh, to be their eyes and ears. And, of course, the number one uh, prerequisite is you have to have their trust. They have to believe what you're saying. And uh, that's why you, you have to be open and honest about it. And uh, I think... That forms that special bond, that and longevity. We talk about in broadcasting the trendex. What's a, a performer's trendex? It's the recognition factor. And a trendex is usually dictated by how long you've been somewhere. Well, then yours is through so, the roof. Yeah. <laughs> this would be year 38. Hopefully it'll start sooner than later. No kidding. <laughs> we, we are hopeful for that. Um, as always, Joe, a real pleasure. And we are thinking of Ed and his family. And... Uh, all of those who are close to him. We certainly will miss uh, Ed Farmer passed away at the age of 70, a wonderful guy. And uh, we hope we see the White Sox again sooner than later. And we can have our own version belatedly of opening day at Fenway. It's interesting. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. We hope that that happens. It seems likely that when they start the schedule, they're just going to pick it up wherever it was. And the, the Red Sox are scheduled to be on the south side in the month of August. But I do think, Joe, don't you, that if we get into late July, early August, we could be talking about a total redo where you just say, all right, we're going to play 80 games and we have to do something that's a little bit more equitable than let the schedule play out as it was written before the year started. I would think so. I mean, it's going to be an unequal situation anyway. There's going to be a lot of inequality because – you can't possibly face the top teams. Every team can't play the first and second place teams. Uh, can't play each other all the time. And they will be tilted to more games against maybe tanking teams. Although hopefully there won't be as many of those this year. And really there shouldn't be. This should be a, a guard against tanking. 
It totally should. And by the way, it, maybe there's a little upside there too. Maybe you say to yourself, if you're one of these teams who is not loaded for a long run, we're going to play 80 or 100 games. Let's let's go all in on this thing and see what can happen. I think Pete Abraham made a good point in the Globe uh, recently where he said that uh, a shortened season might help the Red Sox because of the lack of depth in the starting rotation. That makes a lot of sense. I totally agree with that. And uh, let's just hope that we get to see some of those starting pitchers uh, before long. And one last thing before we, we do say goodbye. Uh, Chris Sale did have his Tommy John procedure. Uh, I guess there's some thought that he could be ready June of 2021. Um, I guess everyone's holding their breath, right, Joe, that that procedure will be what, what has been needed what for, for two years now, ever since the 2018 run. Well, it takes a lot of work to come back from Tommy John surgery, a lot of sweat. And Chris Sale has never been shy about that. I mean, he's so intense that you know he will do everything in his human uh, capacity to get ready to pitch in June or whatever it is of 21. Well, I'm sorry we're not at Fenway today, Joe. Uh, I am glad that we've been able to spend some time here today on your patio once again. But uh, it will be very sweet when we sit in that booth at Fenway Park for the first time. And we'll take 46 in showers, <laughs> despite here sitting in the beauty of southwest Florida. We will, indeed. Thanks so much, Joe. Okay, well, we look forward to doing it again. Great job. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.